I'm Dr. Ramola Sanyal. I'm going to be chairing this session today. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in geography and environment. It's a huge pleasure for me to actually to be involved in this session. Um, so let me just do the administrative stuff um, and get it out of the way so we can actually get on to the more interesting part of this afternoon. Um, we will begin with um, Professor Fran Tonkis, um, who will be speaking to us for a couple of minutes, and then we will uh, hand over to Dr. Mona Kishan, who is going to be uh, doing the, the presentation for the remainder of the time. Um, could I, uh, and then at the end of that, we will have a question and answer session um, for about half an hour or, or longer, depending on, on how much time we have. Uh, but we should be sort of finishing at about 6 o'clock this evening. Um, could I take this time to please ask you, if you haven't done this already, to please be sure that your phones are on silent um, so we don't have uh, interesting ringtones in the middle of the talk. Um, also, um, if you would like to tweet about today's uh, session, the hashtag is LSEAUB. Um, if you're interested. Or a hashtag, Mona. We have Okay, so let me introduce our speakers for this afternoon. Um, many of you may be familiar already with Professor Fran Tonkis. She's a reader in sociology and the director of the city's program. It says that here. Really? It says that here. It's, that is true. You've, you've just demoted me, but that's fine. I said professor, I reader. I don't know what's going on here. I'm reading off. Um, uh, her research focuses on urban economies, development and gentrification, and urban divisions and public space. She has a PhD in sociology from the University of London and has led the LSE studio-based MSc City Design and Social Sciences since 2008. Dr. Mona Kitchen is a regular consultant on urban development at the Aga Khan Foundation and the United Nations, United Nations and serves as an adjunct professor in architecture, urban planning, and landscape design at the American University in Beirut. She received her PhD in design from Harvard University, a master's in planning from the Development Planning Unit at the, London, at the University College London, and a bachelor's of architecture from the AUB. Uh, please join me in welcoming both our speakers this afternoon. Thank you very much, Ramona, for um, acting as chair today. And thank you to our colleagues, for, uh, Sandra and Chelsea, from the MEC for organizing this afternoon's event. And thank you all for coming along in the middle of I'm, what I know is an extremely busy first week of term. Um, Ramona said I would speak for a couple of minutes. I'll speak for a little longer than that. I always find it impossible to speak only for a couple of minutes. But my role today is really just to set the frame um, for the research project that we've done as a collaboration between the AUB in Beirut and uh, the LSE here in London, supported by the Middle East Centre, the LSE's Middle East Centre. And we're coming to the end of um, the research project at this time. Uh, it's two years now since we started putting it together. So when we're bringing to you now um, some of the, th the issues that have emerged from this period of research. Let me tell you a little bit about the research project and our research team and then say um, something more about our conceptual starting point as urbanists and as researchers. Uh, the, another key member of our team, we have, a, I guess, a chair for absent friends here, is <laughs> Professor Cynthia Minty, who is the director of the Neighbourhood Initiative at AUB. 
and Mana led on the research um, for this project, uh, which involved a number of other research <coughs> colleagues as well, including graduate students from AUB um, who have been involved in some of the work that you'll be seeing today. We were interested in urban change in um, Beirut in general, in Ras Beirut in particular, the neighborhood which hosts the American University and which Mana will be introducing us to directly. And, but we were concerned with how the processes of transformation, socioeconomic, spatial and physical transformation in Ras Beirut and beyond could be understood in terms of wider um, transnational and global logics of development, change and restructuring. The research involved different strands of work. Um, we undertook cadastral mapping, mapping of, of land and property titles in our local area of focus um, and in the context of the city of Beirut. Um, other colleagues tracked patterns of investment, ownership and development across the city and um, the interaction with the financial system in, in uh, Lebanon. Students under Mana's direction and the direction of our colleague Professor Robert Saliba um, at the AUB undertook site observations and spatial analysis throughout our field site. And um, at, the, at the core of the research was some intensive so social research field work um, using interviews, using interactions with residents, um, with business owners, with um, political and policy actors, with developers and others in Ras Beirut and around. And it's that strand of the research that Mona will be focusing on today in outlining some of the themes that came out of the project. But as always, it sits within that wider context of an analysis of, of property, an analysis of capital, um, and an analysis of, of spatial change. <coughs> so that's to say something about the project which Mona is speaking to. But before I hand the floor over to her, I wanted to say a little more about our conceptual starting point in the research. It was very much a starting point because I'm not sure our conceptual beginnings reflect our conceptual endpoints. We were interested to try and capture, to sort of maybe black box, some of the very complex processes with which we were concerned in how far concepts of gentrification which have been very widely developed in um, uh, North American and European contexts might help us to understand processes of urban change in a city such as Beirut. The literature on gentrification has in recent times been extended and some of our colleagues in, in the Department of Geography have been centrally concerned with that intellectual project. The extension of that um, framework to think about rapidly urbanizing uh, cities in emerging economies, cities in the global south, as it were. But when um, we undertook the initial literature survey to map out the field, we were confirmed somewhat in our starting assumption that relatively little work had been undertaken in the Middle East and its region on, uh, that, that drew on frameworks of gentrification, even though there are clearly transformative strands of, of capital investment which are reshaping um, cities in the Middle East, the North Africa, in North Africa, in the Gulf, in the wider Mediterranean context. So we began with the concept of gentrification, but it's not really where we finished. And, and this gives us 
um, the title of our talk, thinking firstly about other gentrifications and <coughs> hoping to move beyond it. It is a complex field of debate, as many of you will be aware, uh, but for simplicity's sake perhaps today, I want to just highlight two aspects of the research literature and, and the critical debates around gentrification that we found useful as starting points. And they're classic positions in the field. They, these are um, uh, kind of holy texts in the understanding of gentrification. The first of these offers a more economic account of um, processes of urban restructuring, and that is the so-called rent gap theory, as popularized by the critical geographer Neil Smith in the 1980s and afterwards. This is a rather simple framework that could appear on the face of it to very simply describe the kinds of changes that we're seeing in areas like Raspberry Root. The rent gap, that is, refers to the gap between the actual capitalised value of a plot of land and the potential value that can be derived through rents um, from that land given a higher and better use to um, use the planning parlance. So a lot of the, the debate in North America in the 1980s was around how crucial understanding rent gap dynamics were to understanding processes of urban restructuring particularly under the rubric of gentrification. That gap, that um, speculative gap for profit extraction between the rents that you could make on property given its current use and the rents that might be derived given uh, an enhanced and upgraded and intensified a higher and better use. And in the gentrification literature of that time, the rent gap was understood to refer to the difference between the rents um, that could be extracted from lower income housing in inner city neighbourhoods and those that might be extracted were such housing to be transformed into middle income and higher income um, stock. So this is a very simple device for understanding how and why change is driven in cities. On the face of it, it appears um, to have a rather felicitous link to the, think the processes we can observe in Beirut and other cities like it. Um, and it is, of course, as any of you who have engaged in these debates will know, highly contested. Um, but that was one starting point for us. The other classic account of gentrification, again originating in North America in general, around New York City in particular, is uh, the concept of displacement, um, as classically represented by the work of the critical planner Peter Marcuse who we were lucky enough to have join us for the um, City Debates Conference in Beirut um, earlier this year to consider this question of other gentrifications. In Marcuse's analysis, and again displacement <coughs> is a much debated term, but I just want to encapsulate it as th in three key types that Marcuse has outlined um, over many decades now. We can think about displacement of existing populations, whether these are residential populations or commercial populations, business tenants and owners. Firstly, in terms of direct displacement, the sort of red in tooth and claw model of urban change where existing tenants are forced out through evictions, through um, uh, rent rises, through the cutting off of utilities, the, you know, shutting off water and power and so on. So 
more or less um, coercive, more or less forced, more or less indeed violent forms of direct displacement. Secondly, Marcuse outlined forms of what he called exclusionary displacement. That is the way in which certain neighborhoods in the city become inaccessible to certain income groups, given um, the processes of upgrading and valorization that have taken place. So exclusionary displacement refers not so much to those people who have been evicted, forced out, left the scene, but to those groups who cannot gain access to neighborhoods um, that have changed their character, and in particular have changed their economic value. And finally, a third concept I'd like to to have in the background of, of the discussion for this afternoon, Marcuse identifies what he calls displacement pressures, which is the experience of everyday urban life for those who remain in neighborhoods that are changing. So they are remaining in place, at least for the time being. They continue to inhabit um, their homes and to occupy their businesses and to conduct their social and economic lives, but they're subject to various kinds of pressures um, of, new, of, of urban change, of um, new groups moving into their area, of losing the services that are appropriate to and affordable for them, and so on. And all of these aspects of displacement um, will figure in the research themes that Mona will be drawing out now. We might say, uh, again, to oversimplify that Marcuse here is referring more to the social impacts of gentrification alongside the rent gap theory. So these were two of the, the sort of canonical approaches in the field that we were interested explore, in exploring in the case of Ras Beirut. And at this point I want to um, hand over to Mona to, to talk you through some of our findings in that respect. Okay, thank you Fran. Thank you all for coming. It's a great pleasure for me to be here. So... Um, I guess I have to turn a little bit to the side to see the slides. Can you hear me well? Yeah, okay. I would like to start with a location map of Ras Beirut and an overview of its history and current urban transformations. Ras Beirut is what you see in red on the map. It's a quite large geographic area, almost one-sixth of administrative Beirut. It's located immediately west of Beirut Central District. The name of the the name uh, uh, Ras Beirut literally means literally means Beirut headland in reference to its physical geography that juts out into the sea. The geographic area of Ras Beirut is actually composed of two administrative districts, Ras Beirut district and Ainem Raisir district. I'm referring to Ras Beirut in its broadest geographic sense. The area emerged as a suburb of Beirut in the mid-19th century when Beirut started to grow outside its medieval city wall. Specifically, the presence of the American University of Beirut, AUB, impacted the area's urbanization history and contributed to establishing its reputation as one of Beirut's most prestigious and culturally, socially, economically, and religiously diverse areas. Although local and regional histories of war and conflict affected its relig religious demographics, 
Rev Beirut has always maintained its reputation as a diverse and rather affluent area of Beirut, thanks to its strategic location and many institutions. As the rest of Beirut, Rev Beirut is a huge construction site today. The ambitious real estate project that started in the early 1990s with a private sector-led master plan for the reconstruction and development of the city's world devastated historic center has eventually spread citywide. In the last decade or so, more than 1,500 new projects in different districts of Beirut were granted construction permits, many of which were built on the rubble of older ones. I mean existing buildings. Out of this number, 240 are in Ras Beirut. As you see here, luxurious towers and mega structures are increasingly replacing the area's existing urban fabric and eradicating its familiar social and economic life patterns. Some of the new mega buildings in the area involve the agglomeration of several adjacent plots, like this example, which involves the agglomeration of six smaller parcels, and the, the building, the Citadel building, is the highest, in fact, in the area, and you can see how it dwarfs surrounding buildings, although these are not uh, like uh, low-rise buildings, they are already like 10 floors high. So following this overview, I would like to zoom in. Uh, I would like to zoom into one existing old building in the Hamra area of Ras Beirut, an ordinary low-rise one. The story of a building like this can be quite predictable. Many heirs, old tenants, low-income or absentee landlords, or something of this sort. Its future is also quite predictable: demolition and reconstruction. A spontaneous encounter with one of its owners confirmed my intuitions and opened my eyes to some of the subtleties related to the politics of a property in the context of Beirut, something that directed later the course of my investigations. As I learned, <coughs> the building is owned by one of Ras Beirut's old Muslim Sunni families who call Ras Beirut its own and who's holding to its moral claims to urban land. The person who constructed it died a long time ago, and ownership filtered down to his six children, then, then grandchildren. These are more than 20 heirs. Iyad, my informant, is one of the grandchildren. With his siblings, he inherited his father's share, including a family-operated traditional bakery at street level. Iyad doesn't have high-level education, he labors at the bakery to earn a living. It doesn't take long to realize his anger and frustration. He's a property rich and cash poor. The upper floor of their building is rent controlled and hardly provides them with any income. Business has been seriously affected by competition from Syrian bakeries that, to use his words, invaded Hamra after the eruption of the Syrian crisis. The different shareholders are in disagreement and strongly wish to split. Noting the property's strategic location and construction potential, <coughs> it wasn't surprising to learn that more than 14 different land developers approached the family 
who finally signed an agreement with the ones who made the best offer. These, to use Iyad's words again, are two partners, a Muslim and a Christian, an architect and a businessman. After buying existing tenants out and demolishing the existing structure, the developer will finance the construction of a 14-story luxurious residential tower with apartment sizes in the range of 250 meters squared. According to Iyad, one of the new apartments will be his. He plans to divide it into two, live in one, and furnish the other, then lease it at $3,000 a month. Although he's hardly in his mid-30s, Iyad says that after the construction of the new building, he wants to retire and enjoy being a landlord. <laughs> he concludes that his story is a success story, since he will continue to reside in Ras Beirut, unlike many other Ras Beirutis, who had to sell and leave their area of origin to the strangers who are taking it from them. Now despite its, uh, now, despite its utmost relevance, the political economy of Ras Beirut's thriving upscale real, real estate market is not the main reason why I recounted Iyad's story. Iyad captured my attention in the first place by his overwhelming sense of social injustice and revengeous desire to reclaim his family's property in order to use it as a means for moving up in social status from a working class baker to a new landlord. Second, I was caught by his indigenous claim to Ras Beirut and his estrangement of others who invaded it and sidelined its rightful owners. Third, I was alerted by his highly sectarian tone, which points to the fact that the property politics in the context of a city like Beirut cannot be dissociated from Lebanon's political and social divisions, which are largely manifested along nationality and religious lines, religious sectarian lines. With these thematic issues in mind, I opted to focus on understanding Beirut's changing land ownership patterns and social milieu from the perspective of its original population, mainly those vulnerable to urban renewal displacement pressures. By original, I mean the families who claim to be the first to, be, uh, to, to have arrived in the area and who actually call themselves in, in Arabic Sukkan al-Asliye which can be literally translated as original or genuine. And I will be using the word original or local population in reference to them. The names and religions of these families are well known, at least to each other, and they have, the names have been documented by several local historians with the dates of their arrival into the area. So primarily through social in interaction, informal discussions, and semi-structured in-depth interviews, complemented by a review of local histories and oral accounts, I interrogated their struggle against displacement and uprootedness. And I deliberately cho chose to move beyond the gentrification explanations uh, in looking at the area's quite obvious physical and social transformations because in a conflict-prone, multi-confessional society like Lebanon's, questions of displacement and the class, which are central to the gentrification research, need necessarily to be addressed vis-a-vis -vis broader divisions, whether these divisions are real or imagined, uh, between, uh, divisions between different income, political, and religious groups. 
So in the remaining time of the presentation, I would like to focus on the three main strands of the investigation, which are vulnerability, property and politics, and displacement. I'll start with vulnerability, particular, particularly the vulnerabilities of small property owners and EAS revisionist sentiments. To understand his sentiments, it will be important to say a few words about Lebanon, Lebanon's rental law. There are two rent laws in Lebanon. An old one applicable to rental agreements signed before July 1992, and a new law applicable on agreements signed after that date. While property is leased under the new law command market rates and can, that can increase every three years, the rents of a property is leased under the old law were frozen at rates that did not take into account the progressive devaluation of the Lebanese currency in the 1980s-1990s period or the inflation of prices of everyday goods and services. They are automatically renew renewable, can be inherited, and cannot be broken without compensating the tenant. Feeling cheated out of the real value of their property, the great majority of, land of old landlords stopped investing in the maintenance of their buildings or units, leaving them to deteriorate. Some tried to retake them by force and some by legal and legally dubious means. Not all old landlords have, however, been nasty and not all old tenants have been victims. Lebanon's old owner-tenant battle is first and foremost a result of the failure of the Lebanese state to assume its social responsibility in the affordable housing sector and other social sectors. Since its independence in 1942, Lebanon assumed fair development policies that put much reliance on the private sector. Even the production of affordable housing was left to market mechanisms. Eventually, the lack of public housing solutions led old landlords to think themselves to be the ones carrying the state's obligation to provide housing to lower income groups. There is an enormous shortage of affordable housing in Lebanon today, more than what old landlords are bearing. In view of escalating real estate prices, access to housing has become very challenging especially to first home buyers and potential new tenants. The privatization of much of the country's social services and increasing the prices on food, utilities, education, and healthcare have pl placed additional overwhelming financial burdens on lower and middle income groups. Especially double bills for electricity and water in view of the long rationing hours that require people, all people, regardless of income status, to resort to private providers to fill the gap in the public provision of these services have burdened many families. Lebanon's history of war, internal strife, and political patronage has certainly complicated the situation. The increased demand on housing, infrastructure, and social services in the aftermath of the Syrian crisis has further affected the lives and well-being of many people, especially that job opportunities remain limited and increasingly spor sporadic. 
It is with this in mind that I want to move away from narratives that assume a dichotomy between old tenants and old landlords to arguments that draw attention to the overall social insecurities of Lebanon's low and middle income groups. Indeed, many Lebanese middle and low income earners, regardless of property owners or tenants, share the unsettling feeling of social insecurity that stems from the country's realities of unemployment, economic hardships, inadequate public health and education systems, lack of affordable housing strategies, and absence of unemployment and retirement guarantees. The situation in Ras Beirut is not different. Despite its historic reputation as one of Beirut's most high-end districts, Ras Beirut has never been homogeneously affluent. A recent survey of the well-being of area residents shows that one-third of the, the households live below minimum wage and that a substantial number of families live in poorly maintained buildings in damp units or units without natural light. The percentage of people with chronic diseases is relatively high, while access to health care is relatively low. You can see the figures here. I, I don't have to go over them. Empirical investigations <coughs> in the area shed further light on the vulnerability and insecurity of many of those who live and work there. Lebanon's current economic situation and high living expenses are putting low and middle income families, regardless of their tenure status, in a state of fear and anxiety. Some of my informants compared the painful social realities of Lebanon with advanced countries and talked about fortunate relatives and friends who migrated to the US, Canada, Europe, and Australia. If a foreign passport, these are like quotations from some of the interviews, you can read the original in Arabic and then a translation in English, but I will not go over them. So if a foreign passport has become a safety net for some, for others, personal savings and assets remain the only security against need, illness, and old age. A young, unprivileged person like Iyad certainly has ambitions the construction boom around him and the promised affluence of partnering with a land developer who proposes to bring the family's property to its highest and best use ignites his dreams. If he is able to stay in Ras Beirut, the same is not true for many of those in a situation like his. Although not a disadvantaged group per se, Ras Beirut's small property owners are in fact highly vulnerable to displacement pressures. I would like to illustrate this point with reference to the area of Jal al-Bahr, an area with a predominant population of resident landowners. Jal al-Bahr is a hilly area located in Ras Beirut's waterfront district of Ain Lamraise, immediately west of AUB. According to oral accounts, the Druze, a small but influential religious group in Lebanon, were the first to settle there. That was in the first quarter of the 20th century. With time, however, the area, particularly its uh, upper hill part, attracted large numbers of newcomers from different social, cultural, and religious backgrounds, many of whom came to study and work at AUB. 
The religious diversity of the area declined during the Civil War period between 1975 and 1990, as many residents, mainly foreigners and the Christian families, fled away after selling their properties. Those who bought from them were mostly property investors who got the land, often large uh, uh, lands or small adjacent parcels at cheaper prices and waited in anticipation of a future surplus value. Their investments proved worthwhile. As the rest of Beirut's waterfront, Jalal Bahir is experiencing today a proliferation of super luxurious residential buildings targeting Lebanon's powerful elite, members of the Lebanese diaspora and rich Arab nationals. As evident from their huge floor plates, amenities, security systems, and outrageous selling prices, properties in the area can command $10,000, like the meter square can command $10,000 with floor plates in the range of 750 meters square. Once major landlords, the majority of the remaining original Druze families of Jalal Bahar, now small, now small landowners, live in modest, incrementally built, low-rise buildings with adjoining traditional home gardens. Despite their apparent attachment to their area, they seem very vulnerable to urban renewal pressures. Like their neighbors, some are tempted to sell or to partner with one of the big land developers who are attracted to their area. The reasons are manifold. The need for cash and the desire of a better future for their children, property fragmentation and family conflicts and the pressures, zoning regulations, knowing that small parcels will be undevelopable in the future if they have to apply the required setbacks from adjacent parcels and parking provisions and neighborhood livability. It's only this last uh, point that I want to stop at now. Especially older people, but also the younger generation among my informants talked about the recent transformations of Ras Beirut in a general negative terms. They compared the area before the war and now, what it nicely used to be and what it sadly become, some spoke about increasing physical and social problems, dirt, theft, crime, prostitution, traffic, and the general ugliness. And in most account, accounts, the stranger emer emerged as the source of all social ills. And continuing this argument, some link the drive, their drive to sell with their desire for a better condition of dwelling outside Beirut. The phrase, the area is not ours anymore, it is for the strangers, is, is the phrase that guided the second strand of the invest investigations. So I move now to the second strand, which is property and politics, especially strangers' local narratives. In fact, the stranger that frequently figured out in the accounts of Jalal Bahar local families really deserves further reflections. It can be inferred from people's accounts that they are talking about two types of these strangers. The ones taking over Ras Beirut street life, the visible group, and the ones buying a property and displacing them, the invisible group. Notably,
Notably, the identity of both types of strangers is politicized and polarized against their own identity. With their collective claim to Jalal Bahar, the local families of the area talk about their encounter with someone different from them in terms of cultural and social background, some, someone of alien origin to Lebanon, Beirut, and the religious sectarian group who first settled in the area. The stranger here is the Syrians, the Muslim Shia, Arab nationals, and the Americans. I will start with the Syrians. Over 1.3 million Syrians fled to Lebanon since the beginning of the Syrian crisis in 2011. This tremendous human inflow into a small country like Lebanon has caused a feathered social tension. As almost everywhere in Lebanon, the Syrians who came to Ras Beirut have become a scapegoat for all sorts of urban problems. Even the affluent ones are not safe from accusations. Some blame them for escalating real estate prices and taking the area and the whole of Lebanon from the Lebanese. The Muslim Shia, considered outsiders to Ras Beirut and Beirut in general, are not less accused of taking Ras Beirut from its rightful owners, not only by their sheer numbers, but also by their money and political power. In allusion to the fact that many of the new big developers in Jalal Bahar and Ras Beirut and other parts in Beirut, not only Ras Beirut, are from the Shia community, some people talked about the Shia demographic expansion and, the de and their desire to live in Beirut to prove that it's not only for the Sunnis. Biased statements such as they are rich but not classy and they have more money but not better uh, culture are not uncommon. The they here is not limited to affluent Shia but includes, depending on the speaker, rich Syrians and Arab nationals from Gulf countries and sometimes Lebanese politicians and influential figures. Discontent about the recent strict measures around the Saudi em embassy, which is located in the upper part of Jalal Bahar, some Ras Beirutis and area users have specifically complained about the Saudis taking over of Beirut and Lebanon in general, in view of their high political influence, purchasing capacity and role in inflating property prices. Despite their long presence in the area, the Americans are also under reproach. While most Ras Beirutis agree on AUB's role in enhancing the image of Ras Beirut, attitudes diverge regar regarding the university's geographic expansion, expansion in the area. Particularly local historian Isam Ishbaru blames AUB for exploiting and dispossessing original residents and alludes to an American project that continues to destroy Ras Beirut. In support of his argument, Shbaru refers to the account of the residents of a predominantly Muslim Sunni neighborhood northeast of AUB campus wall. A couple of decades ago, uh, the residents of this neighborhood, or, which is actually an alley, openly condemned AUB's expansionist policies and accused the university of having purposefully installed a deadly chimney in reference to the university's power plant within their neighborhood to help it, meaning the university, in raping their property bit by bit. The story of the generator is telling at another level. 
according to Shbaru, it's not only the poor residents of the Ali who were affected by the emissions of AUB's power plant, but also the residents of nearby luxurious buildings. Hence, this latter group proposed to file a lawsuit against AUB on behalf of both Tower and Ali residents and took it upon themselves to bear all financial expenses associated with the case. The residents of the Ali were furious about, upon this suggestion for how dare these newcomers, these strangers, think that they, the original residents, need someone to pay for them. But more, more than about feelings of wounded pride, the, the, uh, this incident ha uh, hints on the one hand to the vast social distance between the rich and poor residents of the area, who remain alienated from each other despite the short distance that separates them. But on the other hand, it also hints to two-sided claims of superiority. By virtue of being first in the area, local residents assume supremacy over their wealthy neighbors, and by virtue of their money, tower residents assume the same over them. First-comer uh, first claims are particularly important to here to stop at. The stories of local families about how their ancestors settled in the area and how they used to own vast tracts of land in the past can be interpreted as moral narratives that they instinctively deploy to legitimate their collective claims, collective in the sense of a religious community. <coughs> By extending the notion of ownership to the whole religious community, such as saying Beirut is originally for the Sunnis or Jal al-Bahr is originally for the Druze, property claims take cer certain political connotations. Lebanon, after all, is a multi-confessional society and political power is divided along religious lines. Different areas of the Lebanese territory are identified with and are closely tied to certain religious sectarian communities. Although as Beirut has historically been reputed as a socially and culturally mixed area, it has never been secure from Lebanon's sectarian conflict. Unlike those who blame it on the stranger and the outsider, there are those who blame native res Beirutis for failing to cherish the property they inherited from their parents and the grandparents and to have sold it to the religious other. It, it seems this is actually the case. Among my Druze informants, even some of those who seemed most attached to their old house and those who clearly judged urban problems along ethnic and religious sectarian lines admitted that in the end they would do what is good for them. Explicitly they said they would sell and leave if it is in their own best interest. The nationality and the religion of the buyer did not emerge as a key issue. In reflection on such positions, one real estate broker explained that it's relatively easy for the Druze to sell land in Ras Beirut because their real turf is Mount Lebanon, not Beirut. But the same is not true for the Sunni families as Beirut is their own turf. Still he established that even the strictest Sunni families would have a twofold judgment when it comes to selling a vacant plot of land or an entire old building to someone from the Shia community. On the one hand, they would resent selling a stranger Shia 
in fear that this person is after building a mosque or a religious hall inside their area. On the other hand, they would not mind selling to a well-reputed land developer from the Shia community if they feel that the deal is financially good for them. Such responses are hardly surprising in the context of Lebanon, where the question of a property is highly politicized and cannot be isolated from local politics and regional processes of urban restructuring as perceived by different groups. The othering of newcomers by those who claim a precedent, precedence in the area is certainly influenced by this broader political debate uh, that views investments in the real estate sector in Beirut and the, throughout Lebanon as a mechanism that allows uh, one religious group to penetrate and eventually take over areas that belong to other groups. Paradoxically, however, territorial ownership claims at the religious community level are not match, matched by resentment to property sale by those families who hold actual title to, uh, the, the actual title to land. Motives related to money are, and need certainly play a key role in influencing the decisions of individual families to sell and leave their area. Still, their relocational choices are not free from invocations of religious group identity. And this is not only this is not, uh, not only the case of the small Druze property owners of Jalal Bahar, but it is the case of many Lebanese. The locational choices of many people in Lebanon involve trade uh, involve trade-offs trade between geographic centrality and financial, social, human security considerations, ongoing and looming regional conflicts and the growing fundamentalism in the region, allegedly parallel political projects to redraw the map of the Middle East, are certainly reasons that influence people's decisions on where to live. One needs to look at the changing religious demographics map of Lebanon to assess and understand how, how sectarian religious identities are redrawing, redrawing territorial divisions. But this is a larger project which is broader than this research. Okay, with this I will move to the uh, third and last strand of the investigation and it is displacement beyond the gentrification. Much of Ras Beirut's current processes of urban change can certainly be associated with gentrification. Gentrification, as many critical scholars argue, is a politically charged concept associated with class-based displacement, where an existing group of la uh, land users is displaced and replaced by, more by a more powerful group. And at a broader level, with social polarization and systematic inequalities related to the very na nature of capital-driven processes of urban restructuring. This is certainly happening in Ras Beirut and, Leba in, and Lebanon's context. Ras Beirut and, as, uh, Beirut, and uh, Beirut uh, as a whole is undergoing a massive urban renewal process. Outrageously escalating real estate prices are leading to direct, indirect, and exclusionary acts of displacement. Those who are buying in the luxurious and super luxurious <coughs> new towers obviously belong to a group of much <coughs> higher income and power than existing 
as than previous occupiers. Despite its relevance, however, the concept of a gentrification does not fully capture the complexity and the plurality of Ras Beirut's urban transformations and the broader patterns of re residential restructuring that are taking place at national level. Gentrification in Ras Beirut, I would argue, is happening in, a, in more intricate ways that intersect with other forms of displacement and wider social injustices, injustices and insecurities that do not exactly fit under the, the gentrification rubric. Let me elaborate. As the case of Jalil Bahar shows, no one is forcing small resident landowners to sell their land or to relocate from their area. They are doing it deliberately and they are getting good money out of it, especially in cases that involve multiple owners Family conflicts can be serious and the property sales can be desired as something lucrative and liberating. But still, the decision of small property owners to, live, to leave their area of origin cannot be dismissed as voluntary displacement. Their vulnerabilities, fears, survival needs and ambitions in a country with limited social prote protection guarantees are putting them in a state of inner conflict. Their sense of attachment is being negotiated, sold, and sacrificed when put face to face with their desire for social security and financial prosperity. In a way, therefore, their physical movement is socially produced and given meaning in relations of power. While no one can deny the class, while no one can deny the class aspect of urban change, people's locational and relocational choices, however, show that it's not only land and real estate markets that are redrawing territorial divisions, but also religious identity and the politics of fear, which is perpetuated by popular discourse and media channels. Indeed, the unaffordability of Beirut's center, central areas is leading to the emergence of new fragmented centralities that reaffirm sectarian around Beirut that reaffirm sectarian territorial divisions. Beirut, nonetheless, continues to be an employment center to the great majority of Lebanon's working age population. Concentrated poverty also continues to grow inside Beirut and its expanding metropolis. Within Ras Beirut itself, different areas are transforming in different ways. By virtue of its waterfront location and high land value and zoning regulations, Jalal Bahar as the whole of Ain Lamraisi district is turning to an exclusive area for the rich. The same, however, is not true for Ras Beirut district, where processes of urban renewal and urban degradation and social homogenization and heterogenization are simultaneously taking a place. Home to AUB, Beirut's biggest private employer and other, uh, other institution, institutions, Ras Beirut district, particularly its Hamra area, remains a vibrant commercial center and an educational hub that attracts a wide range of social and income groups and a large transient population of students, employees, domestic workers, 
some of whom live in the area in cheap shared accommodations. The high value of urban land is not here in the case of uh, uh, Hamra and Ras Beirut district is not always leading to denying lower and middle income groups the right of, to access and use these areas. Those who have the money and power are cre creatively capturing their dollars. Some of the newer shopping centers that opened in Hamra Street in recent years are primarily <coughs> targeting low and middle income groups. With the Syrian refugees crisis, the area is also increasingly attracting a day population of informal street vendors and beggars who commute there on a daily basis to plead the help of a more privileged other. Despite this apparent social diversity, Ras Beirut emerging social order is in reality very fractured. With its fortified and constantly surveilled islands of opulence, Ras Beirut can be seen as a mosaic of adjacent spaces that mirror Beirut's and Lebanon's growing socioeconomic divisions and inequalities. It's especially the visible manifestations of inequality that I would like to stop at by way of situating Ras Beirut's class relational aspects of urban change within wider injustices and, and the broader locally defined interpretations of displacement. Lebanon is one of the most unequal countries in the world in terms of wealth distribution. According to the Credit Suisse Global Wealth Data, Data Book of uh, 2014, it ranks six in the world. According to UN estimates, around two-thirds of the Lebanese population live below poverty line, the poverty line. The dramatically increasing living expenses, low salaries, uneven geographic development, insufficient public services, inadequate public transportation systems, and the general sense that the national assets are dominated by the country's powerful elite explain public discontent. It is the combination of all these reasons that are leading many low and middle income Lebanese to believe that there is a conspiracy plan to mass evict them in the sense of causing their, their forced migration from the country <coughs> as a whole. This is the last point. Such comments shed light on, an, on the eminent presence of, a broad, of broader processes of displacement than the ones typically associated with the gentrification, but that are in local interpretations of displacement are all the same. In fact, the word gentrification does not have an equivalent in the Arabic language. In colloquial Lebanese, people use the word tahjir, in, with, uh, which literally means displacement, to describe how the current urban renewal process and escalating real estate prices are affecting lower income groups. But the word tahjir also means war displacement, to say that someone is muhajjar, which is displaced in the masculine singular, would instinctively be understood as someone displaced by war or conflict. The Arabic word for migration, hijra, which has a quite similar sound to that of displacement, tahjir, like saying yuhajjar uh, and yuhajjar, displaced and uh, migrating, is also used is often used by people in the context of talking about urban, the urban transformations of their area. 
This is what my informants of Ras in Ras Beirut did. Over and over again, they brought up the issue of migration when talking about the urban transformation of their area. To them, the notion of gentrification-induced displacement, war and conflict-induced displacement, and migration are not distinct phenomena. The way Ras Beirut, uh, the way Ras Beirut's area representative, the Mukhtar, put it is very telling in this regard. As he says, those who left dur during the war and those who are now selling their property to land developers and leaving are, are the same. They were forced to move, they left, and someone else came and took their place. On a final reflective note, I would like to say that Res Beirut's urban transformations and the broader displacement and transformations at city and country level are certainly very alarming. Gentrification here is deeply embedded in wider social divisions and injustices. Hence, policy interventions would require more than curbing the escalation of real estate prices. Unless serious economic, legal, institutional reforms are implemented and socially motivated urban development strategies are articulated and enforced, Beirut and Lebanon's social divisions and inequalities are likely to grow and intensify. The repercussions will be certainly grave. More than anything, the notions of state and citizenship are here at stake. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that very stimulating talk. Um, I'd like to open the floor for questions now. Um, may I request that when you do pose your questions, if you could tell us your name and your affiliation? Yes. Thank you, Nasser Qalala. Um, I do work for media as well as academia and Two points, please. First is about Ras Beirut, because I was recently on a trip there and I crossed from Adam Raisi, the northern side of the AUB. I couldn't get, for whatever reason, to AUB to meet somebody. So I have to walk through an old um, uh, uh, sulam, old... Uh, stairs. Uh, stairs. Stairs, yeah. Uh, uh, around uh, cactus, uh, whatever. So it's uh, quite wide. Mm. And, and there to get to the northern side of the uh, uh, to the AUB. Yes. What I mean still is mixed with high development as you prescribed with the old neglected uh, plots of land that needs somebody to come in and, and acquire. My point here that I met somebody who explained about the new AUB medical center that built there uh, uh, and the huge money coming from overseas. So I'm not saying here with a connotation of complaint, but as a big capital coming, we're talking about ten of millions from a Syrian uh, immigrate in Houston, uh, and this will uh, has repercussions on this. I will link this with uh, what Professor Hashim Sharkis, I'm sure you know about him in AUB, about the architecture change of identity. He gave a, a, a talk here a few years ago in, in uh, MSE about the new developments. MIT now. MIT, yeah, in, in America. So about the change of, so what's your opinion, this is my first point, about the good side of changing 
perceptions from the uh, uh, landowners, I and mean, he didn't say it was just my own impression in this case. So there is a change in the perception of the area to look like modern, like the AUB, and even better. And the other one, if you want, uh, I can explain that's something uh, personal uh, about the other point that you touched upon about the old landowners. And here I will go to a personal uh, thing that uh, the foreign capital, as you prescribed, could be uh, Arab or could be Lebanese immigrants, is, is, is pushing uh, ownership to a new scale. Uh, call it whatever you may. I inherited a, among some property from somebody in a family who didn't marry a 10% share in, in the area that near Petrum. The state itself, the Lebanese state, took over to build a dam. So the uh, property areas is is expanding and a uh, uh, huge price. My point here about that uh, foreign capital wouldn't come to you personally to purchase or push you to sell. Your relatives might come and push you in this case. Exactly. So it, it throws the money around you, around the community in a way that you feel uh, I was pushed to uh, uh, sell my own share by saying if you refuse the big uh, uh, you know, capitalist not directly the one I know. Through relatives and through others will take you to court to say, and this may happen to us by is in this case, to, uh, to buy plots of land around what your share is and then push you to sell at uh, even at good prices for them, but also it changes, in this case, the uh, demography of the area uh, in matters of building high-rise, and you don't know, and you have no conditions about high-rise building uh, inhabitants in this case. So what's your comment on this? I mean, not only Ras Beirut, but the effect on all Lebanon uh, infrastructure and, and demography in this case. Yeah, you raised many things. Like, I'm not sure if I can answer uh, everything. But um, like you mentioned something about the perception that urban change is good. And I think, like, yes, definitely urban change has a positive side. But the key question one should ask is like at whose expense and who at and at whose cost? Like who is winning? Who is losing from this uh, from this urban change? And I think this changes the whole situation because it could be like uh, Beirut Central District. Let's say like you can say like it is it is a nice area, but if you look at the social aspect of it. It, it, then it is another uh, way of uh, judging the project. And I think it is always like this, like success doesn't have one, uh, uh, like one answer. Like you have to look at the different aspects to, 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 to see how good, how bad, good to whom, but to, to, to whom. Like this is what I think about this. And yes, I agree with what you said, because it's not always the foreign capital. It is family pressures. I didn't have time to elaborate, but it is an issue of inheritance laws. And yes, it is sometimes it is family pressures. It is more than the pressures of the real estate market. Because if you don't sell, I don't, like even like they, family members can can cheat each other. They can't, like even one of my informants, she told me, 
like I will say it in Arabic and then in uh, in English. Like sh she said, like now we're in an, uh, a period where al khayyibiyakul khayyu, meaning the brother can uh, cheat or uh, sell his uh, yes his brother because when private interest can, uh, like is at stake, like they, you don't know even your brother because like. I want my own interest, as my informants were saying. And this is why I was trying to put it in a, a framework of bigger injustices and insecurities, because when you really don't have any kind of securities, and it is really not about the like uh, low-income people, it is also middle-income. Because like if I don't have security, like I will be worried about my future. Like, yeah, it is, it is true, and this is what's happening. But it also points out, um, you, Mona, you showed a slide with the um, La Citadel development, yeah. which was taking up six, six had plots. agglomerated six plots um, on the, towards the waterfront. And that is a rationalization of land and of land ownership, which is going on throughout the city and throughout these areas in particular, as the mapping showed. Yeah. But it's not simply six plots. Those six plots could involve ten owners, so the, the complexities of ownership are yes. so yes. intricate and the rationalization process is, exactly. um, it, it is working at a completely different kind of scale. Yes. Ryan. I'm Ryan Sander, assistant professor in geography here in DC. And uh, I had a question quite connected to what Fran just mentioned and some of the initial framing that you all spoke about with this project and so that you were interested in, uh, in some of the classic literature on gentrification and rent gaps. And uh, as you know, all of you know, that uh, Tom Slater, for example, has been writing a lot recently about planetary rent gaps mm -hmm. and the importance of understanding rent gaps on larger scales and in more places than we have typically looked at gentrification, such as in, in Beirut and elsewhere outside of North. But the picture that you've given us is much more complicated than that. It's not against the idea of rent gaps or even planetary rent gaps. There's a lot more happening. And so I wonder if there's any way that you see this as not just being about some some many details specific to the Beirut context, but do you, do you see this speaking back in some larger way, some, some way that you might abstract a bit more to, to try to edit some of this idea of it all being about planetary rent Can I have a go at responding to that? I, um, thank you, Ryan. That's a great question, as always. Um, I think part of the response is probably not is the contrary of abstracting out of that, but rather arguing for contextualization um, and application. Because, as I said at the beginning, um, in a sense, the rent gap analysis is pretty open and shut in a, in a, in a context like this. Um, and, uh, but it's not enough in an explanatory mode or in a descriptive mode uh, to make sense of what's going on. So I, I'm not sure that, it, that research of this kind would be generative of larger um, and more general theses on what's going on in, in other sites, um, but is indeed the argument for complexification or it's not an original argument from that point of view. Um, perhaps more than responding to the rent gap thesis, um, these multiple understandings of displacement or these interrelated understandings of displacement um, I think is a really important 
emergent finding, which of course is true not only, uh, it's, it's particularly stark in the Lebanese context, um, but it's not unique mm -hmm. to that context at all. Um, and of course, it's, it's always striking to me that the gentrification research field is one of the few areas in um, American, I mean US American social analysis where class is central to our understanding of social processes. Um, and, and you don't find that a great deal in, you know, throughout the social science, the, the US social sciences, if you will. And of course, here we see that the, it goes well beyond a class analysis to understand um, pressures, patterns of investment, uh, displacement and replacement processes. Mm -hmm. We know that's also true because of, you know, in the, when um, uh, Leigh and Smith had that original debate about rent gap, um, Leigh was saying, well, of course, if you look at some of the lowest rent areas in North American cities, which were black inner city areas, it's not where gentrification is taking place. So it's not, you can't use the rent gap to explain why gentrification happens. Um, these processes are deeply racialized in the United States and elsewhere. So it's not as if the understanding of class has always been primary or solo. Um, but the situation here necessarily brings in other vectors of, of, of the way in which cities are sorted and resorted um, through different processes. Yeah, and it is very much like the local context would dictate this kind of reading. Like if we are to apply a gentrification framework, it means we are listening, missing on the particularity of the context. So like, like we cannot deny that the rent gap exists. It's very clear. It is obvious. But then, like, it's not enough. It doesn't explain the complexities, and that's why these layers of and these intersections become very important to to, to place it within a local, uh, like, uh, context as well. Like, I don't know, but maybe if we look at context with war, like, I was thinking of Afghanistan because I can draw some parallels with the Afghan context, mm. and it is like we are having worked in Kabul. Yeah, having yes, worked in Kabul, like, I can draw a lot of similarities between. The, there's a big construction boom in Kabul, and it is really many things are very similar. And the migration, like we, we don't even have to talk about mm. migration. It is even more like maybe it is. I don't know whether it's the first country in the world in terms of uh, sending migrants. So, so I think it could be a good uh, example to compare with war war zones. Mm. I think I think Syria might currently have that particular. Anti-prize, but the yes, mm -hmm. Afghanistan is, is keen. Um, having looked at the recent figures on that, ha having said that about the importance of, of context, um, I was also quite struck in um, one narrative that that Mona touched on at the end, where some of the respondents, some of the informants in the stu in the study, were talking about the mass eviction mm -hmm. of the whole country. In a sense, you know, the government wants. It, you, you described it as a conspiracy theory Can I here, say it in that but this idea that, that the government wants yeah. us to leave, it wants yeah. us young people, the, our young mm. people, to leave. It yeah. wants remittances to come back, yes. and mm. of course, it's. Yeah, you know, we all have theories about what our governments want of us, but mm. but nonetheless, it it does put the mm. um, the more precise details of gentrification in a much bigger <coughs> um, mm. geopolitical yes, and economic yeah. context. Mm. Yeah, because I think like if you look at the policies of the government, the Lebanese government, yes, it is encouraging migration because the most of the, com uh, the like a lot of the country income comes from remittances. Mm. 
and uh, yeah, and people would say like it, it's not only my informants because I'm Lebanese. I live in Lebanon. Like it is part of the everyday life for me. It's not part of the research. Like I hear it every day. Like I hear these things every day. Like even like I heard it in. Somebody's saying Safar Barlik. Do you know what is Safar Barlik? I don't know, but I learned it. It, is, it seems like it is from the Turkish. And Turkish it means. Migration yes. World War I yeah, they World use it even in Turkey. Like they would say it as if it is, like it is Safar Barlik. <laughs> so it is forced migration, exactly forced migration. And it is mass, because Safar Barlik, I think, is mass forced migration. And this is how uh, I thought about the mass dimension. <laughs> We have two questions in the back. Uh, let's start at this end and move over. Um, hi, uh, I'm a new PhD student here at SC in the geography department that I worked and lived in Beirut for two years. I've just come back. And, um, no, no, just sorry. Could you speak up a little oh, bit? Thank sorry. you. And for name? Elizabeth. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the effects that you think the new rent law is going to have on mm -hmm. Beirut specifically, mm -hmm. because it's been a controversial subject for the last few years and uh, for the last few months and I wanted to have your perspective on how do you think it's going to change what's going on in last it needs to be implemented first. Yeah, yeah. I, like it is a progress. It, this law it, it will bring the uh, rent control, the property to market rates, in a, a pro, like progressively in a period of nine years, and it is highly opposed by the old uh, tenants. Like I, I think like we don't have any kind of statistics. Like maybe in Ras Beirut, there is the survey that I uh, referred to. There is a kind of uh, uh, like data on the conditions of the tenants, but in general, we really don't have statistics on the socio-economic conditions of the old tenants of old uh, landlords. So it is really very difficult. Like it could have a very negative impact on a certain group of the population, and it could be for the advantage of certain groups. Because like if you don't like one tenant might be rich and doesn't uh, need to have uh, rent control the property, so w why stay in a rent control the property? But someone might be really suffering, and you also uh, putting this person to market rates. So I think it's really difficult when we start with a general, like we're generalizing everyone without having a proper statistics and data. It could be serious. And just, just to come in there also, I think for those of us who have been used to working in Anglo-American contexts, rent control is almost like a holy grail of the anti-gentrification critic. You know, rent control is a good thing. Um, and in the Beirut context, this becomes, this is severely challenged. As you say, with people on, on relatively comfortable incomes yes. who are paying uninflatable rents um, in rapidly deteriorating buildings, it, it makes you rethink some of the... Um, you know, the articles of faith of um, critical, mm -hmm. critical urbanism. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, uh, I'm Leila, I'm from Saad. Um, I'm just wondering, I've got two questions for you. Uh, the first one is, um, is there a movement for conservation in, in this kind of context where change is very rapid and um, people sensing the character of their neighborhood is changing? And the second question is whether uh, the, the newcomers moving in have their own accounts of this place. They have what? 
their own accounts. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, um, you know, it's not very clear um, what are the ideological motives behind the kind of rapid change. Uh, that's <coughs> so, can you say you address the question again? Because you have conservation. conservation. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, whether there's a movement for conservation. Yes, but we don't have protective laws. This is the problem. Like we have uh, movements and NGOs, we, like we want to save the heritage, but then when it comes to the legal system, which is the most important, then it is not support, uh, supportive. And this is a, like a big issue to be discussed because it isn't, like heritage is not protected. And, uh, like, uh, and the problem is many times when the preservationists approach the question of heritage, they approach it as a physical fabric rather than thinking of, um, like, what does it mean if you want to save a building? Like, you have also to think about the owner, because let's say, like, this is, a, my building is very nice, and someone says, okay, this uh, should be preserved, and then maybe, well, I don't know what will happen, because there will be many people, like the shareholders, will not be happy if you don't think, uh, like, uh, how to compensate them, or, uh, like, Yes. But so how would you compare it then to, say, eastern neighborhoods from the center of the city where the, the 20th century fabric, the early 20th century fabric, is more intact? Although like in the Ashrafi and yes. the Yeah. Yeah, but the, like, uh, yeah, it is the, these, uh, they are still inhabited, these buildings. Probably some of their occupiers are owners. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think so, but I don't know what will happen to these buildings in the near future or in a couple of decades later if you don't really put uh, uh, preservation laws and incentives to encourage people to stay or to financially support them or whatever, or even the idea of selling a property rights. It, it was always discussed, this idea, because you cannot just take one's uh, uh, like rights without any... Uh, Compensations. Mm. And the uh, accounts of displacement from those who are moving in? Uh, who are moving in? I didn't understand. I guess, would you. Well, the, I mean, one thing about so the 750 meter square floor plate apartment for anyone who lives in London is, is well, for anyone who lives anywhere, is mind boggling. <laughs> um, but many of these buildings are not. There, there, okay. is, there are no. Residents, um, or okay, no, I got yeah. That, so the people who are moving in, yeah, it depends. Like we, like especially waterfront properties. Like yeah, if you look at the scale of these buildings at their floor plates, many of them it's not. They are not occupied, and some of the apartments are not even sold. But it doesn't matter for the developer because the developer is super rich, and they want really to to put their money. Like they want to uh, invest. They do not want to keep their money in the bank. They want to invest. So if they sell one third of what they built, it's enough for them. So they can wait. They can wait to sell the rest. This is what real estate uh, developers and the brokers can uh, tell you. Uh, so not all of them are sold, and if they are sold, their residents live in the Gulf, in Africa, or... Uh, yeah.
you have to walk at night to look at the lights, but no, most of the lights will be on. All the balconies will be lit, and then you know that no one lives there. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you could, short of, short of booking with Middle East Airlines, you could just walk around parts of West London at night and see a similar kind of phenomenon. Yes? Just a couple of questions. Uh, from your informants, there seems to be a notion that the Syrian migration of refugees, especially since 2011 and 2012, is a serious threat to their existence or to their presence in the area. How substantive do you feel that threat is, considering that most of the refugees that are currently moved into Hamda, at least in my experience, are from uh, horrid socioeconomic status? They do not live in uh, lofty, expensive uh, areas of accommodation. And most of the jobs or the employers that they are taking are uh, jobs that the rest of the institution do not take. How substantive do you feel that threat is? And whether it's an exaggeration from mm -hmm. the people that's been concerning the sectarian practice. I think you said it. It is exaggeration, as I see it, because they are influenced as well by media, they are influenced with what, it's not necessarily real dangers, it is many times, it is the perceived, it is, it is it, there is a lot of perceptions, it is a combination of reality and imagination, what we hear, what we think, but I, I don't know, like, uh, yeah, so it is exaggeration, bias, uh, prejudice, uh, call it what you want. The question is, how much do you feel there's a culpability from the municipality of Beirut in the current development, only the current gentrification, only the proper development that has happened in West Beirut and in these areas, especially touching on the question that in East Beirut, Ashafi, the, the urban fabric kind of still looks the same or similar, hasn't changed just as much, even though there are high rise buildings. But that is probably because that the municipality of Ashafi uh, is very. Uh, it doesn't have a uh, municipality. Well, well, Ashafi uh, is one municipality for Beirut. The Zana mm. or the, 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 the power brokers mm. over mm. Ashafi more like have played a major role in keeping the area somewhat as mm. much as it looks the same, even mm. though there are areas that are under uh, ridiculous environment and stuff like that. So, is there, is it, like, so what's the role of the municipality of Edith, especially? Or maybe the, the government of Edith? Yeah, I think like we don't have a serious uh, plan. For the for city growth, and it's not only for Beirut. Like uh, some of the people probably were here in the two days ago, and even for uh, rural areas, they are growing without any sort of uh, planning. So it means like uh, the urbanization is just sprawling. We don't have any sort of. Uh, uh, and we badly need a planning. And if we don't have a planning. We we're going into disaster, and definitely the municipality should play the role that a municipality should play. Sorry to add a sentence that people are rushing to do whatever they want, capital before laws. In other words, rush to win before anything comes in from central government. It may come, it might not, but let's have a grab whatever you want to have. You have a very quick question. I can make it quick. Okay, because we're almost out of time. So it's just that obviously your approach is all about contextualizing, um, but at the end of the analysis is this big term displacement. 
Um, and perhaps it's just because we were pressed for time, but I wondered if you could maybe unpack it, because it comes very value-laden. It's mm. got huge negative connotations. But could yes. it maybe be a good thing, either economically, because if people aren't making, so to use this rent grab analysis mm. idea, if people aren't making the best use of their place, not only would it be better for the economy, for someone else to make a better use of it, but might it also suggest that the person living there if they move somewhere else, might make a better use of, of their dwelling and might make a better use of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, socially. So actually you mentioned that people had rather xenophobic attitudes. Uh, is that partly because they've ended up living in an enclave? You put the burden on the fact that the area is being gentrified. Is it not actually because they haven't been exposed to much movement? everyone around them is moving, but they are not part of that global process. And perhaps if the displacement were managed better, it could be seen as more positive. Mm -hmm. And so to wrap up this idea, uh, is the, uh, should what we be doing be looking at a more dynamic model of displacement? So in the same way you contextualize your analysis overall, should the displacement not be seen as just this mm -hmm. lump term, mm -hmm. but actually what's going to happen in a generation's time, and not only what will happen, but what could happen. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to start on that one, if I may. Um, we ha have had some very interesting discussions about the term displacement, because as Mona was saying, she was translating directly from the Arabic, whereas it's my contention, others might disagree, but it's my contention that in um, the British context, at least, displacement is a word used by analysts and critics and scholars. People might talk about being evicted or being forced out, but I'm not sure people who are subject to these kinds of processes and pressures say, I'm in danger of displacement. It's, there is a gap between you know, the sort of everyday um, language um, and that used by an analytical language which doesn't exist in this case. These are the narratives um, of the people that took part in the study. Um, but there was one term in the, in the presentation that Mona and I discussed a lot, and we had a little bit of, not a dispute, that's overstating it, um, over whether or not to include it, but the original def definition of gentrification was in terms of unjust mm -hmm. displacement. Um, and our discussion was, well, displacement in, is a neutral description of, a, you know, of movement. Um, you're right that it is always very charged, and it has a, a critical, often a negative connotation. Whether that is to be seen as unjust or not is a question of one's normative or political standpoint or is a question of the individual circumstances. So some people will quite happily and deliberately, as you say, capitalize on their property asset and make a better life for themselves in their retirement or a better life for their children in the future. And it would be very difficult to see that as, as, a, as a spatial injustice. Um, unless you are really quite hardcore um, on that front. So it's, when it comes down to the level of individual stories, it's harder, I think, to make those kinds of judgments often. And although we have placed a lot of emphasis on context and perhaps a more sociological approach to some of these spatial and economic processes, I think it's also important, as speaking as a sociologist, not to remain at that level, because at the risk of being slightly misunderstood, individual stories ultimately don't matter 
analytically if you're trying to understand it. They matter in all other kinds of ways and wearing all other kinds of hats. But the fact that, that yeah, in this story rather than in our room, um, he, his is a success story on his own account, um, is interesting, but analytically you can't do a, a great deal with that other to say, you know, it's going to be different for different people. So I, I would want to see displacement as a relatively neutral term. Um, I'd probably want to argue in, in many cases um, there is a degree of irresistible pressure um, that simply means some people are unable to make lo locational choices um, with the same kind of enablement, the same kind of freedom that certain other groups do. There, there is an inequality, there is a sort of spatial inequality in terms of making locational choices. However, well, it might work out for some actors rather than others. And I started as well at one point to, uh, to, to work with the concept of mobility, which is a more neutral term and it can answer your uh, uh, question or what uh, uh, yeah, because mobility is also a, like it has many dimensions. We can be talking about social mobility which, or vertical mobility in terms of uh, like uh, income and it can be mobility in terms of horizontal or physical mobility. And it could be mobility in terms of migration. But because the political dimension is also important because it is somehow, for, and for many people, it is forced mobility rather, but for many people, it can be like voluntary mobility. Uh, so maybe in the future, like I would like to work more on the concept of mobility in its different dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we're finally out of time, so um, thank you all for coming. Um, before I close, I'd just like to uh, note that the next uh, Middle East Center lecture is going to be on Wednesday, 14th October, uh, with Susan Lamb of the Commission for International Justice and Accountability and, to and Toby Cadman, who are going to discuss and present the findings of a new initiative um, to gather evidence for the prosecution of actors involved in the ongoing Syrian uh, war. So if you're interested in that, please make a note of that on your calendars. Um, so thank you all very much for coming to this session and uh, very much thank you so much for such an amazing um, uh, workshop, both uh, Professor Fran Tonkis and Dr. Mona Kishin. Um, if we could just uh, give them our round of thanks. And applause.